everyone. Welcome to Behind the Tour, the podcast from American Christian Tours that goes behind the scenes of the most iconic sites, historic characters, and true stories in American history to discover how God has been at work since the very beginning. Our desire and purpose is to provide insight for today and hope for the future as together we look at history from a biblical worldview. Well, this is Aaron Kronk, and you guys, I'm so happy you've chosen to spend some time with me today and a couple others that we're going to have on the podcast. Uh, I am joined by Jay Prophet, who was on our last uh, podcast, a couple of them, and Julie Groton, who is one of our education program leaders at American Christian Tours. And Julie has been a veteran educator and an acts organizer with us for quite a while. So Julie, Jay, welcome you guys. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, Aaron, good to be with both of you. So Julie, just tell the listeners maybe just a little bit about yourself or how you came to be uh, an education program leader for American Christian Tours. Uh, actually, it was always a secret dream of mine when I was organizing school trips for my own eighth graders. I did nine trips as an organizer uh, with my school, with ACT. Then I decided maybe it was time to retire from the classroom And it was in the back of my mind that I wanted to come and be on the other side of the motor coach and work for Axe. And uh, so that last year I taught, I asked my principal to give me back the eighth graders. I wanted to organize their trip. Then on tour, I had our delightful tour leader and I picked his brain for five days about what it was like to be an EPL. And then the following uh, November, I had a phone interview and the rest, as they say, is history. And as a history teacher, that's fun to say. Well, and certainly, uh, you know, Julie, we, you know, we all believe in God's providence that nothing mm. happens by mistake. And Amen. Just, just like the whole book of Esther in the Bible, that uh, God is in every last little detail to accomplish his purposes. So it's pretty cool how, uh, how he's yes. worked uh, in, in your life, bringing you to Acts. Yes. And I, I just, I have to say, God is so good. I had a great teaching career in the classroom, an amazing career, but I have to tell you being able to teach on location, share places that are brand new to students and parents uh, so many times a year has been the pinnacle, um, the icing on the cake for my teaching career. I just, uh, yeah, I have to pinch myself now and again. So <laughs> that's yeah, fun, Julie. It's pretty good. Well, good, Julie. Well, hey, we're going to have fun today just dialoguing about a number of different things. Jay, why don't we kick off with the first segment here with our coffee corner chat and colonial colloquialisms. Jay, what, what do you got for us today? Well, Aaron, I'm so glad you gave that title out because then I don't have to say it. But um, <laughs> no, actually, I have my coffee in hand um, and I'm ready to, to give you a little coffee chat here about some colloquialisms. There you go. My first colloquialism is maybe some of you have heard the term a red letter day. My father said that the day I was born was a red letter day for him. Basically, what this means is it's a special day. It's a day that something special happened. That's how people use that term. But some people don't know where it came from. In colonial days, they printed gazettes and newspapers and books and pamphlets. They also would print up calendars. What they started doing is whenever there was a special day that would be usually like a saint's day or a holiday, 
they would print those in the almanacs and diaries in red ink. In people's minds, a red-letter day became known as something that was like a special day or Mm. a holiday or something like that. So that's where that came from. And then um, the other one I'm going to share with you, it's actually a familiar song, uh, but it has a lot of colloquialisms in it. So I'll we'll kind of go through the, the verse real quickly. Um, it's Yankee Doodle. So it starts off, Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony. And right away you're like, you know, we sing this as a child, but you're like, what is Yankee Doodle? Now, most people have probably heard of Yankees. You know, we have the Yankees baseball team. People don't really know where that term Yankee came from. When the Dutch were coming over as settlers, the British came up with an insulting name for them. Two of the popular last names of the Dutch settlers were Jan and Key. And so they put those together. Uh, Jan Key became Yankee. And and then that name... Um, was passed on to the people in that region, which is New Englanders. So, um, and then doodle. Nowadays, we think of doodling. You know, you're drawing a little picture with a pen. Back then, doodle was an 18th century British term for a stupid person. And then the next line was, he stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. In the colonial days, feathers were given out for different things, especially in the military. A lot of times soldiers were given a feather if they had done some act of bravery, and they would stick these feathers, you know, either in their uniform or in their cap. Then macaroni, a lot of the wealthy British children, they'd go on trips to Europe and they'd go down to Italy. And a lot of times they'd come back, they would have picked up the latest fashions in Italy. So they'd be wearing these modern clothes. And the term stuck for that is that they called that macaroni. So in this little poem, they're kind of making fun of the the Yankees because they stuck a feather in their hat and they thought they were well-dressed. And then the last line is, mind the music and the step and with the girls be handy. Um, Mind the music and the step is just referring to knowing how to dance well, which was a very popular pastime, a very social activity back then. And then, of course, with the girls be handy was a reference to that you're a ladies' man. So those are some colloquialisms in that famous little old song that we sing. Um, and I just thought those would be kind of fun to share today. So yes, Jay, and I'm never I'm never gonna sing that song the same way again. <laughs> same here. Well, let's move into our next segment. To me, this is a really a wonderful topic, and especially with the places that we've been to on location, all three of us. Today, we're just talking about spring and Easter, specifically in the Washington, D.C. area. Springtime, I guess no matter where you live, you have some semblance of spring, you know, in March uh, and even into April. Flowers, grass, you know, just new life, things bursting into color. And it's a, I just love this time of year because of the new life that's springing up from the yeah we're gonna we're gonna go to a couple different locations uh, at least verbally today and uh, talk about where we've been and uh, spring and Easter time in the Washington D.C. area. Yeah, and Aaron, you know why I think it's such a big thing in Washington is um, they their downtown you know is centered around what we call the National Mall, which is a huge outdoor green space if people haven't been there that are listening those of you that have been there before you know exactly what we're talking about but it's this huge expanse of parkland that's just right in the heart of the city it includes the famous tidal basin which is like a little lake 
those areas are just filled with all kinds of blossoms, blossoming trees, flowers. Um, and so I think the people that live there and also people from around the country, um, when they come there, it's just such a sign of springtime because the whole city um, just kind of bursts into bloom. Well, and it can be almost uh, distracting when you're trying to do our job, walking the tidal basin, and you forget what you're talking about because all you keep doing is pointing out the different trees and the magnificent colors and, oh, wait, don't don't walk off into the tidal basin while you're looking up at these beautiful blossoms. Exactly. It's, it is tremendous. There was one lady in particular helped uh, really with beautify Washington, D.C. and took it upon herself to do a lot. So who was that? It was uh, a president's wife and her name was Lady Bird Johnson. When President Johnson came in, when he came into office and she was with him, it was a really turbulent time in our country's history. You know, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War. There had been a lot of uh, civil rights demonstrations and protests. And then after the, you know, assassination of Dr. King. There was big riots in Washington. A lot of neighborhoods have been burned. And the city just didn't really have a very attractive appearance. Julie, I think we have a quote, a little quote, if you want to read it, um, from Lady Bird Johnson. Well, Lady Bird Johnson, uh, where flowers bloom, there blooms hope. Uh, Ugliness is so grim, Lady Bird Johnson once said. A little beauty, something that is lovely, I think, can help create harmony, which will lessen the tensions. She she just basically she started this big campaign to beautify the city. So she sent out invitations to people that had money, you know, that would be donors. She also sent out money to people that were active in their neighborhoods and communities and got them together and said, hey, how can we beautify the city? And so there were like two groups that came out of that. One group, they really wanted to beautify the areas that all the tourists came to. But then another group was really concerned about their neighborhoods and, you know, how can we fix up neighborhoods? So she really supported both of those at the same time and just started getting pe- people busy, um, you know, working on ways to beautify the city. During the time, they planted hundreds of thousands of azaleas, dogwood trees, and uh, they say that over the time of that beautification project, they planted over two million daffodil bulbs, which was supposed to be like the largest planting in history. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot of daffodils, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And that wasn't the yeah. only thing she did. She also helped her <clears throat> husband uh, get through a Highway Beautification Act. It's kind of neat how one person can really spark um, something like that that affects so many people. And continues on for decades. Yeah, and that's part of our our, our vision with American Christian Tours, too, is that one person can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And as I think about Lady Bird, and even her name, uh, Jay, Julie, I'd read that uh, she had gotten that name from a family nurse um, when she was a child. And the, the, the family nurse thought she was a, such a beautiful child <laughs> that her, her nickname for her, and her real name's Claudia, uh, but, but that her nickname uh, became Ladybird. And I think she really lived up to her name um, because she had a, just a, a real passion 
for uh in fact she's got the wildflower foundation that's right uh, in austin texas Texas. yeah that's cool um well let's keep it with the flowers for a little bit because we have another uh topic right aaron and this also involves kind of how one or two people can really make a big difference and involves passion too um I think, and to accomplish something uh, that you really would like to see done, you have to have a passion for it. The story of the Washington, D.C. cherry trees is a, is another great example of, again, just springtime uh, and beauty and life. So, yeah, let's, you guys, let's talk about the cherry trees a little bit that are uh, around the Tidal Basin in, in D.C. Julie, have you ever been out to D.C. right in dab smack in the middle of peak blossom time? Yes, on tour with a five bus move, <laughs> trying to navigate. And it was a logistical uh, miracle yeah. um, to navigate because the, the streets were crowded. There were pedestrians everywhere, just elbow to elbow. Because traditionally, the spring is really a busy tourist time in D.C. But when the cherry blossoms come out, not only are the, the tourists from outside the area... But the locals are really pumped about the cherry blossoms. And so they're all out as well. So you have people in D.C. and the surrounding metro area are all coming in in droves to see the cherry blossoms. Along with every eighth grader in America. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and it really is a sight to behold, too, uh, you know, with the pink in the the white blossoms and I know there's different types of cherry trees there, but the, the flowers seem to be mostly pink and white, but it's just like a little fairy tale land. And it's so beautiful. They're like clouds almost when you see them, you know, all together, it's just like a cloud of pink and white all around the tidal basin. Yes. So how did they get there? Let's talk about that real quick. So there was a lady, Eliza Skidmore, This was taking place in about 1885. She was an author and a geographer and a photographer, and she had a she had a job with the National Geographic Society. She traveled many times to Japan, and she fell in love with their cherry trees. Which so she came back to the United States with this passion for cherry blossoms. What did they do back in the 1900s um, with the Potomac River and that area? What What did they do with the, the Potomac River? They had to, and that's where the name the Tidal Basin comes from. It's not tidal, but tidal, T-I-D-A-L. So it has to do with the tide from the ocean mm-hmm. uh, because the Potomac River is something called an estuary and an estuary will rise and fall. So what happened back in the early uh, 1900s is there was uh, they built this tidal basin, is what it was called, to help control uh, the flooding. So it's basically a lake uh, that will rise and fall, but it helps control the, um, the, uh, the level of water in the Potomac River uh, around D.C. So she saw that area and she's like, you guys should consider planting ornamental cherry blossom trees around this area. I've seen this in Japan. It's beautiful. And they kind of ignored her. So this Eliza Skidmore, she talks to Mrs. Taft about the cherry trees. And her plan to raise money to plant the cherry trees. Mrs. Taft took a great interest in it. She had lived in Japan for two years and she thought it was a wonderful idea to plant them along the roadways. So in April of 1909, a Dr. Takamini from Tokyo was in Washington and heard of Mrs. Taft's 
talking about planting these cherries trees. And he said that he would be able to get a donation of 2,000 trees uh, in the name of the city of Tokyo. However, when those trees arrived in D.C., they were infested and had to be destroyed and they were burned. Can you imagine? I'm sure everybody was very concerned about how everyone was going to take that, you know, that gift getting burned on the on the grounds of the mall. Well, they didn't give up and more trees were sent over um, and then ended up coming to Washington, D.C. and were viable and healthy and were planted there. So 1912, uh, Mrs. Taft and the Viscountess Chinda, wife of the Japanese ambassador, planted two cherry trees on the northern bank of the tidal basin. So then it starts, people just fell in love with the trees, right, Aaron? Well, and again, they're beautiful. And I think there's, I mean, there was a reason why they kept pursuing them. You know, they wanted to get them over here and between, uh, you know, a number of different people, including obviously Mrs. Taft, uh, they were able to accomplish that. And, you know, we, we see the, I guess we reap the benefits now of the beauty Um yeah, what a what a cool story that they they kept pursuing and wanted that some of the some of the beauty of Japan over here in the states. We've talked about some of the beauty of springtime in Washington D.C. Why don't we uh, talk about Easter a little bit? Because we know that um, Easter, uh, as it's celebrated all over the world, is is quite significant because of the uh, the, the the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Uh, our Savior. So there's uh, a story about Abraham Lincoln about his death and assassination on Good Friday, April 14th in uh, 1865. So as we think about, uh, again, the, the beauty of life, um, you know, Jay, every, Julie, every time I'm in Washington, D.C., um, and either at the Lincoln Memorial or just um, uh, at uh, Ford's Theater, too, where he was shot and killed, I can't help but think um, of that disrelationship uh, on that day that he was killed. Um, so what are you guys' thoughts about that? Just uh, with uh, Abraham Lincoln being killed on Good Friday. Um, and then uh, I, I guess I think too of the next couple of days, the mourning period of, of all of the United States on Easter Sunday. And I'm sure many sermons were preached <laughs> from the pulpit um, uh, just on his, you know, in remembrance of Abraham Lincoln. Um, well, one thing that comes to mind, Jay and Aaron, is that there had been great celebrating in the city for several days. Uh, Grant had just received uh, surrender from Lee, unconditional surrender. People were in the most joyous uh, state of mind, and it was time for celebration. It was time to be happy again. It was time to go and do yeah. some fun things, and it was spring, and Easter was coming all of those things that give us hope for the future. And I, that's how the Lincolns felt as well. And mm -hmm. uh, then to have the assassination uh, and then him uh, die on morning of Good Friday must have just put the city into just a plunging dark hole for a time. And um, when it was supposed to be something so wonderful to be moving on, moving ahead, you know, getting the country back together and then having the loss of, of this beloved man. Well, beloved in parts of the country, not so much in other parts of the country. Yeah. Just but I think um, when I was thinking about this, too, um, you know, 
in general, now this is a generality, but in general, I think people back then tended to be a lot more religious. And mm-hmm. especially after going through um, the Civil War, I think that had probably brought a lot more people back to elements of faith. And Lincoln was, um, a, a lot of people that read his speeches, um, they say that his the way he spoke was almost like he had a biblical language and because he spent his life you know growing up reading the bible and so he would kind of speak in like kind of an old testament rhythm and cadence you know but there's there were stories about like after he died that a lot of the um the magazines and uh you know things that were coming out were having like illustrations where and I've actually seen pictures of some of them where they were depicting like on one side a picture of Jesus, um, you know, during the Holy Week and then Lincoln on the other side um, and kind of like they were both, um, you know, martyrs dying for the freedom of people. Jesus died for people's um, souls and Lincoln died, you know, set enslaved people free and there's just a lot of that imagery that went on well and then the former slaves uh referred to lincoln as father abraham mm-hmm. you know obviously a reference to uh biblical abraham yeah so something to ponder yeah so it's unfortunately whenever easter comes around in washington um you know everybody kind of has that memory of lincoln you know, this was a time that Lincoln died. And I think, like Julie said, um, the people were ready to kind of celebrate and forget about the war. And Mrs. Lincoln loved to go to theater shows. And so that's why they decided they were going to go on Good Friday to a play at Ford's Theater. And I know a lot of our, I, I think a lot of my groups have loved to go to Ford's Theater. I mean, it's just such a you know, an unusual story. Do you guys have that same experience? Absolutely. Uh, and the guides, uh, the National Park Service fellows that share that story do such a good job and mm-hmm. uh, bring to life be, when you're sitting in the theater and you can look up at the box and imagine uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln there. But, you know, besides that is kind of, I guess, a darker memory for people. But there are some, there are many events, of course, that take place in the spring in Washington. But one of them that people really have interest in, and I've I've read about this too, there's a local um, magazine in Washington that did a, a survey of things that were kind of on people's bucket list to do in the area. And one of the top 10 was to attend um, an, the Easter sunrise service at the Lincoln Memorial. And tell, just tell, tell the listeners, like when you're standing at the Lincoln Memorial and you look east, what are you looking at? Well, you're looking, you're, I guess if you're there early enough in the morning, you're going to see a sunrise, but you're going to see the sunrise come up directly over uh, the United States Capitol building. Um, and also the Washington Monument um, is that direction too. So it's about it's about almost two miles from the Lincoln uh, Memorial to the Capitol building. And it's, I would imagine, I mean, I've seen some sunsets in that area, but a sunrise um, from the Lincoln Memorial I think would be incredible. It's really pretty all the time, but man, when you go there in the early morning, like Aaron said, and you see the sunrise, 
um, it's it's very pretty. So that must be why in past years they've had about 10,000 people show up on an Easter sunrise service morning. Absolutely. To witness that. Yeah, there's like 10,000 people show up for that. But they have a, a stage they set up and there's a church in the Vienna area that, that produces the program. But that's not the only uh, sunrise service they have in Washington. What's the other one? So the other one is at Arlington uh, at the Memorial Amphitheater right there within the cemetery at the top of the hill. So we say the top of the hill where the tomb of the unknown is. People bring blankets and pillows, <laughs> sit on those cold marble benches. Even in the spring, in the shade, those benches yes. are a little chilly to sit on. They usually expect a couple of thousand people to come. Well, I can sure relate to the cold marble benches. Um, I, I know sometimes, usually I'm the one talking, so I'm up standing in front of the group in the amphitheater. But sometimes we've had like one of the guards come out and speak to our group. And I've sat on those benches when they're cold. And it it really goes through you. Yes. That's up at the Memorial Amphitheater in um, the cemetery, which is, of course, where uh, on the other side of it is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And that is one of kind of the three big things that people come to see in Arlington Cemetery is the Tomb of the Unknowns. Um, What would you guys say are the other two that a lot of people come to see? Well, Robert E. Lee's home, because... Arlington was not always a cemetery. It was a family's home and their farm, their plantation, and quite a bit larger than what the actual cemetery is right now. Um, that would be one place. It's, it's a prominent figure in the property. You see the house right up there. And then, of course, um, uh, Kennedy's gravesite would be another big draw at Arlington so that ceremony that we were just talking about took place at the Memorial Amphitheater. That amphitheater was built in the 1920s to provide a larger um, place to come and celebrate the Memorial Day service, which Memorial Day first started in Arlington. But we're talking about Arlington Cemetery and what what is Arlington? Well, I would say Arlington wasn't always... A cemetery. It was somebody's home. Robert E. Lee and his wife, Mary, who's the descendant of Martha Washington, lived there for 30 some years. It was their home, a plantation, about 1,100 acres. And then that little thing called the Civil War broke out and forced Robert E. Lee to move his family away from the city because of its proximity to Washington, D.C. And uh, they never went back. Um, the story goes that Robert E. Lee went to school with the quartermaster, Montgomery Meggs, and uh, Montgomery Meggs was pretty upset with Robert for not siding with the Union. And after those first couple of skirmishes right close to Washington, D.C., they had a lot of dead soldiers they needed to bury. And um, Montgomery Meggs said, you know what, I'm pretty upset with Robert E. Lee. I think I know where I can bury these dead, and I think I'm going to bury them right in the rose garden that belonged to Mrs. Lee, and he did. So clearly the Lee family could not move back there later on in the 1880s. Um, The government got clear title to the property, but not after a legal battle that went all the way to the Supreme Court. 
the Lee family was compensated, I believe, $150,000. And uh, at that point, the government had the property. And now we're about 624 acres that Arlington encompasses, including the mansion at the top of the hill. Right. And this is a national cemetery. And that is important uh, because national cemeteries are cemeteries that are set aside where we bury our soldiers who have died. Um, Many of them fought and died serving our country actively. Others served in the military and then they died later but can be buried in a national cemetery. Well, and you guys, um, we work, you know, we work with a lot of different groups, but we do work with a lot of student groups, usually like eighth graders, seventh graders. Um, This has been my observation. I don't know if you all have any input into it, too, but a lot of times when I've been walking through the cemetery, um, I'll just be talking to some of the kids and I find out that a lot of them, this is this is the first time that they've even been in a cemetery before. Have you guys had that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And a lot of the kids, you know, they're, they, yeah, I get some of the feedback I get, Jay, Julie, that uh, these kids think it's a little morbid, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. you know, about a cemetery. But then once they get in and they start learning about the men and women um, and the people that, died uh, in defense of our country for a greater cause. Um, They start getting a little bit different understanding, but it's also a perfect segue into some wonderful conversations just about death and life too. Mm -hmm. We look at all the gravestones uh, and they have a birth date and they have a dash and then they have a death date. Um, And it's, uh, we, we talk about, you know, that time in between those two dates is where we live our lives. Uh, so just being in the cemetery has, uh, you know, avails itself to um, some really good conversations. Right. Well, and I know a lot of people that come to the cemetery, they basically come there. It's a huge place. Someone could spend a whole day there. But a lot of groups, especially like from other countries, will come there and they want to see one thing is basically they want to see the tomb of President Kennedy but I would say a lot of groups that come there want to see Kennedy's grave, but they also want to see Robert E. Lee's home, like you mentioned, Julie. And then um, they also want to go up and see the Tomb of the Unknowns, which is where we have three unknown soldiers buried that represent the soldiers from the different wars. Um, but I think today, Aaron, we should probably have Julie tell us a little bit about a recent visit that she had to Arlington. In fact, it just happened this spring, a couple of weeks ago. Yep, we've had and, tours out um, yeah. on the road since February this year, which has been wonderful. We have a lot of school Absolutely. groups traveling again. Um, but yeah, Julie's got a wonderful story from what I understand. I don't know that I've quite heard it yet either, Julie, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing it. Well, it's it's in reference to Section 60. So the cemetery is broken down into different sections. The older sections, of course, are closer to the mansion or closer to the tomb. And as you move out to more the perimeter of the cemetery, you've got other sections. And this Section 60 uh, has become uh, quite a resting place. Uh, it's about... Um, 14 acres uh, out of the entire cemetery. And it's 
it's where most of our Iraq and Afghanistan uh, veterans are being buried or have been buried. Um, it's, it's a tremendous place to reflect. Um, there are two graves that are particularly close to me. And I had an opportunity to share that with a group of students from California. Um, normally, we would do a wreath laying ceremony at the Tomb of the Unknown. And uh, because of how things are with uh, um, limiting different things to do up there, they're not doing wreath layings at the, at the Tomb of the Unknown. So this school group out of California, lovely group, um, terrific organizer and, and just a, a wonderful group to be with, uh, had four young ladies who had worked very hard to earn the privilege of laying a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknown. And then when they found out they could not do that very planned uh, event, they were quite heartbroken. And the teacher came to me and said, you know, I've got these girls, they worked hard, they wrote essays, and now their opportunity to do something a little extraordinary has been lost. And she says, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, maybe I do. And um, there is the gravesite of a young woman. They also, here's the other thing, they had a special interest in honoring the memory of a fallen female soldier, a warrior princess. So I said, I happen to know of a gravesite, uh, a young woman who was killed uh, while serving in Baghdad uh, and who happened to be serving uh, and um, on the same base as my own daughter during um, that time in Baghdad. They were friends. They knew each other. They had bunked together. They had been in Kuwait together and then in Baghdad together. And this young woman, um, Jessica Ellis, was killed in her Jeep. Um, there were four of them in the Jeep. She was part of a group trying to clear a roadway, which was something that was very common to do in Baghdad. And an RPG came through the Jeep, and she was killed instantly. The other three survived. Um, anyway, she was killed on Mother's Day on 2008. And uh, I remember my daughter messaging me, Mom, Ellis was, was killed the other day. And it was a significant impact on her time and tour of duty over there. So we put it together. Um, the team came together in the office. We had flowers put together. Um, the girls and I spent some time together talking about Jessica Ellis, talking about uh, who she was, what, uh, how she died. And uh, then my own daughter sent me a video message that we were able to share with the students as well. And uh, there was an audible gasp in the group when Sarah said, my friend Jessica was killed on Mother's Day in 2008. And when you can personalize a young woman's life, a young man's life, talk about them as a human being, not just a name on a headstone, it, it, becomes, uh, it becomes real to them. So we did this lovely ceremony. The girls um, talked about Jessica. They read scripture. They read a poem and then uh, shared a few more important things about uh, what it means to sacrifice, to pay that ultimate price. 
And uh, it was it was just a heartwarming experience. And another cool thing is I did get my own daughter, Sarah, on the phone while we were there. And she spoke to the children over the speaker and told them that uh, she had been in touch with their platoon mates and it had impacted people around the country that these girls had honored a friend of theirs. So uh, just a wonderful experience. And I was so humbled and honored to be able to partake in that. And everybody uh, who helped put it together, um, those folks in the office who make all those phone calls and then boom, the flowers show up right when they're supposed to. Uh, it was it was a divine appointment. And I think one of the other things that I share with students, two things. Number one, that every single headstone represents a person who had a family that loved them. That's number one. And then I go to Isaiah 6, 8. And Isaiah 6, 8 tells us, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. These were send me kind of people. Be a send me kind of person in your own little eighth grade lives. You can be a send me kind of person, uh, whether it's taking out the trash or um, helping your teacher clean up in the classroom. Be that send me person and don't hesitate uh, because Arlington represents send me kind of people. So uh, I'm just very grateful to have had that opportunity uh, to do that. That's a really great story, Julie. I know that we uh, we did hear word of that from the group even when they got back. Some of the parents had, you know, expressed how much that really meant to not only their daughters, but even just to them. And I think, you know, Section 60 is just a really special place because it's really unlike a lot of the other sections in Arlington because you have so many family members come there, they really look at that as a special place where they can remember their loved ones who've left. Mm. And um, in fact, I was when I was reading about this, getting ready for the podcast, I read about um, a young lady who her brother was killed in Iraq in 2007. And she said that Section 60 is the one place we can come to to make a connection with our brothers and husbands mm-hmm. and families. And she said, this is our memorial for Iraq and Afghanistan, like the Vietnam wall was for their generation. And so, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You see people walking through section 60 with a little more um, frequency. And there's uh, more of a connection. You would see people maybe sitting down at, a a grave site in section 60, maybe even a blanket, Mm -hmm. extra flowers, different things. And in the other sections, not so much, but at section 60, you have a little more um, personal. There just seems to be something a little more personal there. Well, I'm really glad you had that opportunity with those girls because it sounds like it was really meaningful and impactful Mm. to them. Yeah, Julie, thanks for sharing that. This just uh, mm, absolutely a powerful um, story. But not only is it powerful, it is, I think, in, in, a, in a great sense, you, you recognize God's hand of providence even more. Again, we talk about God working in the details. Mm. And you got to, I mean, we all, ex- I think we experience it every day and we sometimes we just don't know it, but that was right there. And, and it's happened 
more often, uh, as I look back on the time I've been able to take groups into Section 60, uh, I've taken groups to Jessica's gravesite before. I have never done a wreath laying there. That was tremendous. But there's a former student of mine who's also buried there, and I, I go there as well and share his story and a special message from his mother. And it's when you get the light bulb moment in these students' minds, you see it. You actually see it. And it, everything kind of comes full circle after they've been to the tomb, they've been to Kennedy, um, and they've walked and walked and walked, and headstone after headstone after headstone. There's a realization there. Yeah, I think it's a stark realization of life and death. Um, and it is a place, I always preface that too, Julie, when I go in with mm-hmm. a group, is this is a place of extraordinary life and, and then death. So we, yeah, just uh you know, Arlington Cemetery, um, Arlington Military Cemetery, is not a morbid place. It's a place to go and visit uh, with a reverence for what God has done and what um, many people in our country have paid the ultimate sacrifice um, and gave their lives for freedom. Amen. Well, Julie, thanks again. And Aaron, we've we've enjoyed having Julie with us, right? Absolutely, yes. Thank oh, you. thank yeah. you, gentlemen. It's been fun. We'll have but, uh, we'll have her, we'll have her back. Of course. Well, on each episode of Behind the Tour, we do like to wrap up and leave our listeners with a call to action to consider. And so, Aaron, if you want to take us out with the call to action, I'll turn it over to you. Sure, Jay. Yeah, just briefly here. Um, Our call to action today, I think, really can be found in the dash on the gravestones. Um, And we talked about we talked about uh, spring in Easter um, in a beautiful city, Washington, D.C. And um, again, we think of we think of life. We think of um, even life coming from that that frozen tundra, so to speak, even where I live, it's frozen in, you know, just green grass coming up um, out of the brown grass. Um, but God sent his son Jesus to give us life. He gave us life so that we could be free and we could be, you know, sometimes I think we get freedom mixed up a little bit, um, what freedom really is. Uh, but I think the call to action today, Julie, uh, Jay, would would be found a little bit in the poem uh, called The Dash by Linda Ellis. And again, when you look at a gravestone, you see a birth date and you see a death date and a dash in between. That's the time that we have here on earth. That's the time that God has given to us. And, and scripture tells us that God uh, knows all of our days um, from even before we were born, uh, even before we came into this world, God knew every last minute that we were going to spend on this earth. So uh, the connection is how we live our lives. Um, And the Dash uh, poem says this, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For the dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and how we love 
in how we spend our dash. So we think about this long and hard. Uh, are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. To be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved them before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a while. So when your eulogy is being read and your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things that would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? Mm. And there's some great truths in that, but even more so, uh, you guys, I think how we live our lives should reflect what God has done for us. Well, you know, it's not just living our lives on our own and trying to be everything that was just mentioned in that poem, um, but with a firm understanding that we do have a short while on this earth. Uh, and to live for the Lord or to live for ourselves uh, is, a, is a pretty good question I think we need to ask. And to live for the Lord, God will empower us to do that. Um, so as we leave today, uh, Julie, again, thank you so much for being here. Um, and uh, we're going to have Julie back again, right? Oh, <laughs> it was my pleasure and honor. And yes, absolutely. And Jay Prophet, you're uh, an awesome guy, and just uh, it's been so much fun working with you. And Jay's going to be with us in the future too. Well, thanks, Aaron. It's good to be with you again. So, you guys, thanks for joining us today. Um, and as always, I want you to remember that your story, your own story, is a part of His story, and God put you here and now for such a time as this. And we here at American Christian Tours believe that one person can make a difference. And that uh, we also believe that together we can make a big difference. And we also know that inspiring people, both young and old, is important. And that the past gives insight into the future. Um, and lastly, that we're passionate about providing tour programs that make a difference on location. And that God will work in the midst of our trips. So everyone, thanks for joining us. And we hope that you'll uh, tune in to listen again. And until next time. <laughs>